Listener Production. I didn't ask her because I knew the answer would be so painful, it would be upsetting. I don't know how she explained it. And I just say, I've been too frightened to ask her because I know it. the answer would be so painful that I, yeah, I can't deal with it. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. Wendy Harmer is a national treasure. She's an author, stand-up comedian, national TV host, and a trailblazer for women in the media, becoming the highest paid woman on FM radio in Sydney. Now, Wendy has been entertaining us for 40 years and holding our collective hands through some of the biggest news events. She's recently released her extraordinary memoir, Lies My Mirror Told Me. Now, I've been lucky enough to experience Wendy's warmth and compassion firsthand. So I was excited and a little nervous to be chatting with her, to be having her in my podcast studio. Now, we had a lot to catch up on. So here is the first part of our interview. And a gentle warning, this conversation touches on suicide. So if it brings up anything for you, help is available at Lifeline on 13 11 14. When? Yeah. I'm so excited to see you <laughs> face to face. Yeah. Because for so long, you've been my companion in the mornings through so much. And so to actually see your beautiful face, it really, it makes me feel complete because you've been there figuratively in my life, but also through other big moments in my life. And it's just fabulous to see you. It is fabulous to see. You do not look one day older. How is that even possible? <laughs> Botox, dare I say. <laughs> I don't think it's just Botox. I think it's something else. I think it's a, a joie de vivre. I think you've discovered the fountain of youth, Jessro, and I think that you always knew it as well. Aww. Just a joy. Um, yeah, I've seen you when you've been down. You know, there have been times when you've been down, but your general sort of approach to life and joie de vivre, it's... it's Absolutely infectious. That's beautiful to see you. How do you go, though, with those long eyelashes and your glasses? Well, that's a good question. Now, remember, I'm interviewing you. Oh, right. (laughs) You can tell me later because if I ever try and wear long eyelashes and my glasses, well, the thing is, I'll tell you, with my long eyelashes, yes. what happens though, because I need my glasses now yes, to read yeah. the questions, of course. but then I put the glasses on, I look in the mirror and I realise I haven't glued them properly, they'll <laughs> 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 be a little bit skew with, and then because they're so long, they'll get stuck on the lash, so to speak, and that makes them look even a little more demented, but I don't mind. Yeah, no, no, of course not. Yes. So, anyway, to see you, there's yeah. so much to talk about. Your incredible memoir, Lies My Mirror Told Me, I finished it yesterday. Oh, you made me weep. (laughs) You did. There were so many times when I just wanted to scoop you up Mm. and give you the biggest hug. You are so open and you share so much with us. I can't begin to imagine how hard that was to write. 
Well, you know, probably not as hard as you'd think because I've been just gassing on telling people about my life for years. I'm thinking, wow, is there anything left I haven't told anyone? But of course, yes, there was lots that I hadn't told anyone. And yeah, there were moments where uh, I was reliving all those emotions from years ago and yeah, it did become uh, quite taxing. But people often ask, is it cathartic? And in some ways, it is because I've had the weirdest thing happen, Jess. Since I wrote that book, a lot of memories of that time have already started to fade. It's almost like I put them down on the paper. I don't need those anymore. Thank you. So, so isn't that interesting? My, it's, my, it's my external hard drive. <laughs> well, it is. You've sort of put it to bed yes, and said, okay, is. I don't need to look at that again. Yeah, but I have to go through all this and talk about it, of course. There's a way to go, yeah, yes. Go right Let's, ahead. If we can, yes. rip some of that Band-Aid off, yes, when that you do in your book. You had a real tough love approach from both of your parents mm. and your mum made you look in the mirror. Mm. This is the title of the book. It's called Lies My Mirror Told Me. And I was born with a very severe um, bilateral cleft lip and palate. And so, um, you know, where you know, you usually got little babies, cupid lips and things, there's sort of a hole in my face that went sort of right up to underneath my nose. So, you know, a large sort of hole in the face, if you like. As my dad so very kindly said on national TV, a disastrous looking thing. If she was a dog, you would have put her down. Thanks, Dad. Anyway, that's being blunt. Not particularly cruel, but it's just him. And your dad was blunt. Yes, he was very blunt. Anyway, so I was at school this particular day and I was about eight years old and the kids, uh, the boys at school were calling me Flatface and Eagle Beak and Wendy the Witch. And my mother said to me, I want you to go in front, stand in front of that mirror and when you find something to complain about, you come out and tell me. Well, it was a fair bit to complain about, Jess, actually. Uh, what happened was that I didn't have the surgery to sort of properly correct everything till I was 15 years old. And I had like only a little couple of little bits of stubs of front teeth going sideways and my face was very flat and my lip had been sort of stitched up in a rudimentary fashion. Babies these days have these most amazing surgery when, when they're very little. But I live with mine for 15 years. So anyway, I'm standing in front of the mirror. I'm looking at this and going, well, you know, actually, I, I do I have a few things to complain about. But I went out and I said to my mother, nothing. I've got nothing to complain about. And uh, 60 years later, she admits that that was a very brutal lesson. As a little girl, though... Where did you find that strength at that time to say that? Because if that was me, I would have been in floods of tears and that would have crushed me, but it didn't crush you. Well, I look, Jess, I think my mother was struggling uh, a lot. I mean, she had, by the age of 22, she had four children and, I mean, she had me when she was 17 and my brother Noel was also born with a cleft lip. And she'd had two miscarriages as well. And so she was going through a really hard time at that time, I think, you know, with postnatal depression and, you know, whatever it might have been. And so I think that even at that age, 
I knew that I didn't want to burden her anymore. You know what I mean? I mean, you you, you struggle with your mum uh, with um, mental illness and depression. You must have known as a little girl that she needed looking after him. In some ways, you and I connect on this because we mothered our own mothers. Am I right? You're spot on. And I think almost as a little girl, you do assume that mantle. You you have this sense of intuition that things aren't quite right. Mm. So you do take that extra burden of mm. responsibility, mm. Mm. which is a lot, though, to carry. You know, when, when I think about you too, when you write about when you then went to school and you remember your clearest memory at the age of eight in terms of boys picking on you mm. about how you looked mm-hmm. and how, though, you didn't say that was bullying, which I found fascinating. Well, you know, um, I'll be honest, I think sometimes the word bullying is overused. When I think of bullying, I think of a syst- systematic um, bullying uh, over years, you know, and I fe- feel. But I think playground scraps of sort of being picked on and having fights with other kids or whatever, I don't think that that is bullying. And I was sort of lucky, I guess, in some ways because my dad was the headmaster. Well, not in this particular school. He was one of the teachers. So if I, like, Dad, 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 the kids are picking on me. And he'd go, well, go away and fight your own battles. But I do think that you know, that kind of long-term systematic bullying was never going to happen to me. So I think, I know there'd be a lot of people listening who will disagree and say that perhaps we haven't recognised bullying over the years in the way that we should have. But I think in some ways we, uh, you know, if you label everything as bullying, in some ways everyone becomes a victim as well, you know. And you were determined not to be a victim because you said as well you didn't see it as bullying because you were not going to give those boys power or agency over you. Well, yeah, well, I think that's all. I'm, I'm very careful around that though because it's all very well to say that. But it is another thing to make that happen. And as I say, I think my father being a teacher helped me there. But I think a lot of kids can say, well, I'm not going to be a victim, but they are victimised anyway. So, I, you know, I wouldn't say that I was particularly special in that way by saying I'm not going to be a victim because, as I say, kids can say that, but they're still bullied. It's a fine line there I'm trying to draw. It is. No, it is very much a fine line. But the thing is, you are special (laughs) because you are when You're extraordinary because you continued to rise above a lot of things that were thrown your way. You also, in terms of dealing with it, you sought out allies, Mm. didn't you? You kind Mm. of found kids. You found your tribe at school. Yeah, that's right. I moved schools quite a lot because Dad was a a teacher and he used to get fed up with where we were every, you know, few years or so and they wanted to go to another school. And so, um, yeah, I sorted out my little tribe. Wasn't the A-list girls, you know, they were a bit you know, glamorous and sporty and all that. We were the daggy girls. We loved school. You know, that marked us out already (laughs) as being different. We were either country kids or suburban gals or, you know, and we were never in trouble. We weren't cheeky, you know, all that. So I always managed to sort of gravitate towards my tribe. I never had trouble making friends and I I was never an outsider 
And I think there's a bit of a clue there. There is a school report which says, Wendy is a good student but she talks too much. (laughs) Somehow I didn't let having no front teeth or, you know, scars on my face or a flat head or whatever, you know, um, get in my way. I, I, you know, not, not one of those sort of popular you know, well, one of the big popular girls, but I did all right for myself, you know. I did okay. And also, you did enjoy talking. You loved English, you loved words, and also your dad, he would make you read out the newspaper. Yeah, well, this, my father was very determined that I wouldn't have any impediment to my speech, and so <laughs> he, to my brothers and sisters' great resentment, he would have me reading aloud from the newspaper at the kitchen table at night. When I hosted the big gig uh, years and years later in 1989, I rang up my dad and asked him what he thought and he said, I thought your diction was quite good. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really? (laughs) But don't you love parents? I mean, they're just blunt and they kind of put you back down to size. I know, I know. But uh, uh, there's that. But also, the other thing, though, that Dad was doing was in the background. I mean, he was sort of pushing me out the front, you know. uh, I mean, I ended up being the soloist in a combined schools choir in the Bendigo Cathedral. Now, there must have been sort of 600 kids there. I was the soloist for one of the Christmas carols. And so I stood out the front, there's a star in the east on Christmas morn. And all the kids sang, rise up, shepherd, and follow. And obviously, I wouldn't have been there unless Dad had been there to push, push, push. He wanted me to be Australia's first woman prime minister, Jess. Missed it by a mile, but anyway, you know. You've done a whole lot of other firsts, though. (laughs) You have. And that was one of your fondest memories on stage, wasn't it, as a little girl? Yeah, yeah, standing in the cathedral, singing out the front. And I knew that Dad had put me there, you know. Mm. Let's talk a bit more about your mum Mm. as well. You don't like surprises, do you? No. (laughs) And why is that? I don't like to. You know why. You've read the book. My mother uh, tried to take her life when I was 10 years old. Um, she, uh, there was four of us and I was the oldest. And one day uh, while dad was away playing football, she uh, called us into the bedroom and she was lying on the bed and she said, if I don't wake up, call daddy. And we thought, well, this is all very strange. How does this work? Where's daddy? We don't know where he is. And then she gave us a, a whole lot of money to spend up the shops. And we thought, this is very strange. We didn't, she never gives us any money to spend at the shops. So the other kids sort of ran ahead, uh, was, you know, up to the corner shop and I was sort of dragging my feet behind going, there's something not quite right here. And then the next memory I have is of my father carrying her unconscious to the car and uh, she was taken to, um, you know, a mental health facility and and then advised sort of not to come back into the family home. So she went off to live with her mother in Tasmania. So there was dad and then the four of us. Then she came back for a little while and then on the night of her, as dad tells it, her 29th birthday, she went missing and she had left and she left and she went to Tassie and and didn't come back after that. But the reason I hate surprises is that I remember hiding in the lounge room behind the couch, ready to jump out and say happy birthday 
and she never came home. So, yes, Jess, I hate surprises. My husband, Brendan, you know Brendan, and my agent, I remember Mike Munro approached them a couple of times to do it. This is your life. Can you imagine? I would have tunneled my way out through the floor. It would have been <laughs> my Get worst. Get me out of here. <laughs> the worst nightmare. I'm terrible. I read uh, every, like I read the last pages of every book. No, you don't. Seriously, I do. you want to know the ending? I, yeah, I, I hate, if I don't know the ending, I, I, I hate thrillers. Brendan and my and my kids despair that they've never been able to buy me a present that I didn't guess. Or I spent a lot of time going, what would they have bought me? Or if it's under the tree, I'm looking at it going, I wonder what, I'll just have a bit of a poke. <laughs> <laughs> says so much, doesn't it, about those times in our lives and mm. those formative years, those things that really sit with us. Because I remember clearly too with my mum mm. when she was having her breakdown, I would hear her crying herself to sleep each night. And I'd be too frightened to go into her bedroom. Mm. But I would sit next to her door and I couldn't go back to bed until I knew she'd gone to sleep. And still that kind of sense of if I hear people around me upset or whatever, I can't almost rest until I know they're okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. As I say in the book, I'm glad my mother left. And she says she is too because she says, I've thought this through this constantly. I would have been dead. Your father would have been dead because she was. She wanted to murder him. She was going to sleep with a knife or a gun under a pillow. And then you four kids would have been scattered and you wouldn't be the people you are. So, I mean, it's really tough to say I'm glad my mum left. In my case, I am glad that she left. And as you say, that is a very hard thing mm. to reconcile because we have this sort of hallmark idea around what mothers should be or how they should behave, don't we? Mm. Very much so. If you if you look through history, I mean, uh, what was it? Was it Princess Diana's mother who was the bolter? Do you remember? I think she was. I think so. Yeah, they call it, and, and you know, women who leave children are oh, they're they're really not well regarded at all. Painted as real villains, but it's actually not for everyone. And there is. There is real, you know, compassion required and... And forgiveness and, when... Yes, exactly. And the mental torment that, um, you know, I know, I know my mum's gone through for her whole life. I mean, I can't imagine, like, when she left, she was only, she was 29. And I can't imagine for all her life, people would have asked, and where are you, do you have kids? And where are they? And I don't know what she answered because I've never been brave enough to ask her what she answered in that situation. Hmm. What were you frightened that she might have said? I would just... I didn't ask her because I knew the answer would be so painful it would be upsetting. Uh, I don't know how she explained it. And... I just say, I've been too frightened to ask her because I know it, the answer would be so painful that I, yeah, I can't deal with it, you know. 
as a little girl, you did deal with it in the sense of you then became the mother. Mm-hmm. And your job was you very much kept your family together, didn't you? Well, I tried. I was um, 10 years old and so I learned how to iron dad's shirts for school and I had a little stopwatch there and I used to be able to do it in under three minutes and there'd be five of them, one for every day of the week. Yeah, and I did, my brother very kindly um, collaborated with a lot of the stories with me and he remembered things that I had and he said, oh, I remember that you used to help us get off to school and make sure there was milk in the fridge and we had eggs and butter and all that kind of thing. And he said, you were like our surrogate mum. And it was so interesting when he said that to me because I think I cried for four days or something like that because uh, I thought, wow, I did do that and he remembered and, yeah, that's good. And then I was able to sort of let that, you know, a whole memory go as well. And also I think to have that recognised when. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's really quite something too, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. That it was noticed, that it did make a difference. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because there are times when you feel like no one is seeing this. This isn't yeah. doing a you scary doing, of good. You were doing the same in your house. Well, similar, similar. For us, it was different in the sense of even though my parents had split up, my dad was still very present. So we would often go and stay with my dad and stepmom where mum would be in the psychiatric hospital. So we had care around us. Sure, there were times when mum was unwell and still at home and I'd be assuming that role. Mm. But there was still very much a care, like a safety net around right, us. Yeah, yeah. And I sense for you there wasn't no that safety net. Was there? <laughs> you were there, to, like running from one end to the other to try and catch everyone, oh, weren't you? Well, I don't know. <laughs> yes, you were. Well, well, well. I, I, you know, all I can say is, um, look, the thing about it is, Jess, is that we four knew that if we didn't all pull together we were going to go to an orphanage because we were told that by our dad, you know, with the best will in the world. He couldn't, we wouldn't be able to look after the four of us. So we all huddled around together and said, oh, we're going to, you know, we, okay, we're going to look after each other and, and we, we're going to be very good and we're going to make our beds and we're going to do the minimum. So it wasn't just me. It was the four of us, you know, bonding and going, right, well, we are not going to be split up. No one is going to split us up. So we sort of worked together as a little group. And another part in your extraordinary memoir that broke my heart too <laughs> was when you talk about what suicide, that you knew that word Mm. and that there were some moments in your early life when you thought about that. Yeah, well, I'd seen mum have a go at it, so I thought, oh, this can't be that difficult. Because at at home, as much as I was running around, you know, trying to keep the other issues piled up and my father, so he's in his early 30s, he's got these four kids, and he used to go off and my husband, every time he hears this, Brendan just hits the roof. He used to sometimes go off on a Friday night and not come home till Sunday morning. So we would be in the house by ourselves, the four of us. I go off my head about that too. I mean, that's when I read that, I was like, what? I know. What on earth? How could he consider that that was reasonable? I know. And and so I remember, you know, wouldn't know when Dad was coming home. Everything would be, you know, in chaos. And so I decided to have a go at suicide myself. So I jumped off the garage roof 
But it wasn't very high, Jess. I was once talking to Andrew Denton and he said, it wasn't a cry for help, Wendy. It was more of a whisper. I mean, we have to laugh about these things, don't we? Well, Otherwise, spray- we cry. Well, it was a pretty poor effort, you know. I sprained my ankle, I think. That was about it. Oh. <laughs> and then also, too, when you when you wrapped yourself around the pole. Oh, I know. In I the backyard. That. Oh, I know. Oh. I know. I crawled out of my hands and knees into a storm one night, <sighs> you know, in the backyard, and I just was gone, you know, I was just, I just wanted to sort of stay there forever and disappear. And my two brothers are on the back porch going, Wendy, come inside right now. And I thought, well, if I don't go back inside, what's going to happen to them? So, you know, yeah. Yeah, there there were some really dark times there. But we had lots of fun too, Jess. It's pretty fun when you haven't got any parents looking after you. And you just run sort of wild, so <laughs> no, to speak. And... No, no. It's pretty good. Get up before dawn, you know, make some cordial and some tomato sandwiches and then just bog off for the whole day and play in the old gold mining pits and tunnels. Can you believe it? I can't. I... And here you are still standing. <laughs> I know. Alive I mean, and kicking. I, look, it's a miracle none of us perished. I would not let my kids do that in a fit. Mind you, there was no one there, so we just did what we wanted. But we were good. We never got into trouble. No one ever, you know, the cops never caught up with us. and But we didn't do anything bad. You know, we just sort of played and were happy and made the best of things as kids do, you know. I mean, all of these things that you went through when, what made you so brave? And then you were able to build this incredibly successful career and life, something that if a lot of other people have gone through, it would have destroyed them. I don't know, Jess. I mean, it's the same for you, isn't it? How do you how do you locate that? Look, I think part of it is the personality that I was born with. Uh, we talk about nature and nurture. Um, yes, part of that is that personality. I mean, mum would always say, you know, I record this in the book, she said, oh, you know, um, we're different. We're outsiders. And I mean, no, that is not me. I mean, I, you know, I'm the furthest person from an outsider. You could imagine I'm sort of Mrs. Have a Chat, you know, like you. And then part of it, I guess, is um, nurture. And that is my dad all the time teaching me uh, responsibility for my own for my own actions. Like, this is dad. Okay, I'm a teenager, right? I go out to a party with my boyfriend. I ring up dad and say, dad, what time should I be home? He says, um... Well, how can you tell when it's time to go? <laughs> how do you know when it's too late? What is too... And you're thinking, just tell me when to come home. Just tell me the so time. I never, ever, ever was given any boundaries whatsoever by my father. He says that he... he oh, this is ridiculous. That he brought us up as a, in a psychological experiment. That's what he, I mean, mad. And he said, and that meant that there were never any rules. So, I, you know, when my mum was there, there were rules. But when dad was there, there were no rules at all. I mean, you know, like I went off and got married when I was 19. I mean, anyway, I'm sure you'll you'll get to that. But, I mean, could you have told me not to? Oh, no, you're going to make your own mistakes. I mean, but. You know, there are make your own mistakes and there are make your own mistakes. Come on. <laughs> but also, you're the kind of person 
you're not going to be told, even at 19. Oh, I wouldn't mind to be told. <laughs> every now and then. Every now and then that would have quite helped. Like, you know, come home now at sort of one o'clock in the morning. That would have been quite good. I, When I was at Brownies, all the other girls had rules that their parents had given them. You know, where are you going and, you know, what time you have to be home. And I had none and I used to envy those girls. <gasps> They're so lucky. And, of course, they hated it and they'd look at me and go, oh, you're so lucky, you know. <laughs> it's a difference. Isn't it funny how we always want what we don't have? Yeah, We yeah, sort of sure. wish for those other sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. And, look, I think you've just got to, you know, it doesn't come by accident. You, you're quite right. I'm not answering your question quite, you know, uh, properly because I did expend a lot of mental energy in sitting there and thinking, right, what's got to happen here? Um, I can't go to Dad. I can't go to Mum. I'm lucky I've got my grandmother in Ballarat who was just, you know, my beautiful, beautiful grandma, Nellie Brown, that, you know, I feel safe with. But she's all all the way in Ballarat. She's way too far from for me to go. Okay, I've got my brothers and sisters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a bunch of friends over here. Now, put that all together and I'll watch out for, I'll just keep my eye out for anyone who's going to do me a mischief and I'll just see how that works. So, it's a lot of, um, you know, it's a game plan. And, you know, one of the things that really took me back a little bit just recently, uh, there was a comment on stupid old Twitter or something and someone said, oh, well, it's all right for you, Wendy. I mean, you've got resilience. Lucky you. You think, lucky you? As if, as if you were born with resilience. In fact, it's not, the definition of it is it's an adaptive response that's built up over years and years. You're not born resilient. It's not in the genes. It's something that you have to work for. Now, it is true just to say, though, that some kids really don't develop that resilience because, you know, they might have, um, you know, some underlying neurological, you know, problem disorder. Some kids are just shy and they're unable to. But I seem to have had a good, you know, a little configuration there of being born very bossy <laughs> and, and learning how to um, manipulate. Look, I had this thing when I was a kid I really did believe I was like Roald Dahl's Matilda, where I could just make things happen. If I concentrated hard enough, everyone would do what I said. Isn't Wendy just the best? To have her on the podcast really is so incredibly special for me because she has been a very constant presence in my life, whether it be me listening to her on the radio or her reaching out to me. And that's what I want to share with you in part two of our episode. As you can listen, there is so much that we want to cover. So before you head out and buy Wendy's book, Lies My Mirror Told Me, Listen to part two, because what we cover in this episode is what made Wendy get out of bed each morning to do breakfast radio, her incredible act of kindness to me that helped me through one of my darkest moments, and how Wendy dealt with the fallout of being the first woman to host the Logies. Looking back, 
it was a bit Ricky Gervais, you know, as a bit ahead of its time. But, you know, it's so funny now, though, because those sort of acerbic jokes, I mean, they were no more acerbic than what Sam did, but it's years later and everyone's used to the idea that you give a bit of, you know, ginger sort of, you know, a few barbs. But, but the bizarre thing about it was I had a much gentler, sort of cuddlier routine worked out and the producers came to me and said, oh, come on, get stuck into them, you know. Wow, was that crap of crap advice. (laughs) Now, if there's someone you know who would enjoy this chat with Wendy, it is so easy to share it with them. If I can do it, you can do it. All you need to do is to just tap the three dots on the top of your phone and pass it on. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show is hosted by me, Jess Rowe, executive producer, Nick McClure. She's a wonderful leopard lady. Audio imager, Nat Marshall. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.